Hey guys, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Grad Life Game Changers podcast. This is the podcast where we bring on guests that have followed less conventional careers and that are too left of center for our regular careers podcast. My guest today certainly falls in Stop Rocket, podcaster, YouTuber, TEDx speaker, ex-reality TV star, and aspiring trophy husband, Chris Williamson. Welcome to the show. Thanks, mate. That's the correct introduction for me. <laughs> Uh, firstly, to kick it off, do you want to tell us a bit about your career as a early, I guess about 10 years ago, you were a club promoter, a reality TV star, and then now you're doing something totally different. So how did you kind of go from there to where you are now? Yeah, correct. So I went to university, Newcastle Uni. Uh, I spent all my money in Freshers Week on boozing and, and partying and stuff like that and sat next to someone and said, I'm skint. He said, I can get you a job flyering for this company I used to work for in Leeds. So I started flyering and then very quickly became a professional party boy, moved up through the ranks, became an event manager, a city manager, got my first franchise at 19, uh, started my company with my business partner. That guy that I sat next to still today, 15 years later, is my business partner. So we still haven't managed to get rid of each other since then. And since then, we've run thousands of parties. I've watched a million people go in and out of events. We're one of the biggest events companies in the UK, Voodoo Events. I'm still a director there. Uh, I'm just a little bit more um, separated from the night time, the nocturnal events, uh, so to speak. It's a little bit more strategic now. Uh, yes, as a part of that, obviously, you're weaponizing clout and social status and stuff like that. So for me, increasing my uh, reputation in or decreasing it, I suppose, uh, arguably, um, was something that I was aiming to do. Going on Take Me Out was an option that I got because I was modeling as well. Uh, I was also DJing at this time. So I was just like a, like a professional fuckboy, basically. Um, and anything for a quick book and a bit of status was, was going to work. But it was very fun, and it was a bit of a YOLO. So I did Take Me Out, and then I was on the first season of Love Island. I was the first person through the doors on that, and I spent a month on that, uh, which was fun. Free charcoal toothpaste and a blue tick and stuff like that, all the big, all the big wins. And yeah, after that, sort of pivoted a little bit, um, decided that I, I probably wasn't fully fulfilling everything that I could be as a human. Um, what were you like, ever? Pardon? Like in university, were you studying a, a good degree? Were, were you smart? How, did you know there's a bit more about you than this? Like, uh, like it does sound like a, a cool lifestyle for like two years, but it sounds like incredibly plastic and artificial. Off the surface yeah it's, so it's very transient right it's very transactional um and yeah i mean at uni i was doing business at a bachelor's i did a master's in international marketing but i chose degrees that were so bland and vague because i had no idea what i wanted to do uh, so i just did the thing that i thought would prepare me for finding out what i wanted to do in future but i i, I this is a whole other conversation but i don't think that there's such a thing really as learning business in in university, I learned nothing about business in five years, including a placement year of uni. I learned absolutely nothing. I learned more in the first month of running my own business than I did in the five years that I spent there. So uh, anyone that's considering a business degree, I would, I sh going back, I wish I'd done philosophy or psychology, which mm. were my two passions. I tried to get something out yeah, of it, sorry, I treated when it. When I asked, so were you clever? Like, was there an awareness there that you uh, did think about things at a slightly deeper level and that, um, the people that that industry that you're initially in that it, it appeals to um most in many ways seem like they have very little going on upstairs and that but not in a critical way like that's great for them like so like oh, i don't Simple know like, pleasures exactly and it seems like i look at some of these little islands I'm like fair play them like they're doing them and uh, look at some like more higgins like she 
is a multimillionaire now and she embraced that You're lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. And it looks like it works well for her, but for some people it clearly wouldn't work. And uh, it seems like you had an awareness, some sort of awareness that like I probably wanted something a bit more. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I just realized that there was something, there was, there was a misalignment between the person that I was and the person that I was pretending to be. Um, but I didn't really know. So saying, did you sort of know that there was more going on upstairs? That, that kind of, that wasn't really that right. I was, I was playing so many personas being the club promoter guy and the big name around mm -hmm. town and the reality TV guy that I genuinely didn't know who I was. Uh, so it mm -hmm. took an awful lot of self inquiry work to actually kind of strip away a ton of persona, you know, like a decade of, of not being me and then uh, emerging on the other side of that, something a little bit more aligned. Part of that process was starting a podcast, which is now 350 episodes in called Modern Wisdom. And that is where most of my passion goes now. Um, I still do other stuff. I own a bunch of houses, so I manage a property portfolio and I still director at Voodoo Events and I still do modeling and, and stuff like that on the side. But the passion and the energy and the creative pursuit goes into the show. What do you make of love island and how it's become such a cultural phenomenon now like it is huge it is i i don't think people understand how big it is and how big an impact it has on on pop culture now like if, if you if you get that invite for love island when you last more than three weeks you're going to leave a millionaire like guaranteed you come out with a blue tick a million followers on instagram and you can do I don't know what I don't I'm not well educated enough in this sphere that I know how long these guys last but you don't need to work for probably about the next at least two years probably yeah. up to up to three or four yeah exactly. you can just fly around the world doing influencer work and taking photos with nice clothes on when do you think this actually becomes saturated and people realize do we need another boohoo man model who's who looks the same as the other hundred ones we've had before this um not yet Okay. Is the answer not yet? Apparently, um, you have to remember that there is a, a cycle, right? So there's an attrition rate or a churn that's going on. So, for instance, people now don't know that I was on the first season. So, and my exposure was significantly less than someone like Chris or Ken, perhaps from season mm -hmm. two, that are sort of they've actually transcended and become legends in their own right on doing commentary and punditry or whatever. I don't know whether you call it punditry, like commenting on last night on Celebrity Big Brother, but you mm -hmm. get my point. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, I have some really big problems with, with Love Island. I'm aware that I'm sort of speaking as one of the enemy mm. here, but um, it teaches young people that the route to success isn't consistent hard work pursuing something that you're good at for a long period of time. It's be in the right place at the right time and hope that you get plucked out of obscurity. If you take someone that is a nothing and then six weeks later, they are the best known person mm. in the UK with two million followers and a million pound boohoo brand deal coming out the other side of it what's the example that that sets to young people that watch this show that look up to these kids that follow them online about how you're supposed to achieve success in the real world and they are by definition the outliers so if all that you're doing is constantly trying to find clout to chase status and again this is me speaking as someone that's been through the ringer with regards to this on a number of different levels um it's a pathway to mis misery, like, and it's not sustainable either. You can't scale this across time. You can't scale constantly hoping to be on reality TV because you either get it or you don't. It's binary. Um, so yeah, I, I am concerned. Uh, with regards to the cultural phenomenon, I just think that it, it, it ticks so many of the boxes that people want. Um, it's kind of mindless viewing, so you don't really need to think about it. It, it kind of creates in-group, out-group tribalism without it being too uh, 
too strict. So obviously we have this with politics at the moment, in-group, out-group, but it's really, really harsh and tribal and full-on. But you can be, I'm team Adam or I'm team Jonathan or whatever, uh, and it still gives you that sensation of being in-group, out-group, but you don't really care as much. Um, and we've got some really, really smart friends that spend all of their day talking about politics and debating stuff, and they have a low-key sort of guilty pleasure of going home and the wife makes them watch Love Island, but they actually enjoy it because they can just switch the brain off. A lot of friends that ironically watch Love Island. And, you oh, know, yeah. Well, like, I mean, oh yeah. Oh yeah. What do you mean? It's it's hilarious. Yeah, it's so good. Why aren't you watching? And then you're kind of like you're addicted. Like you, you you're as fully fledged an audience member as this the- isn't ironic. After three weeks of compulsive watching, this isn't ironic anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. The joke's a bit old now. Um, yeah. No, it is. It is interesting to see where it ends. Uh, in terms of your podcast, Modern Modern Wisdom, what's your what's your end goal for that? Like, where do you see it going? What's the is there a destination for it? Do you think as a YouTuber, you'll have a sell-by date? Or as a podcast, you'll have a sell-by date? Or do you think you can still keep growing at the rate you have, which is pretty uh, astronomical over the last two years? I saw you went from 100,000 to 200,000 subscribers in the space of like two weeks, I think. Um, so yeah, where do you see it going? Is it- I think so. I, I genuinely think that the quality of the guests that I bring on the show and the quality of the conversations that I have is close to unmatched in the UK. I don't think that there's many other British podcasters that put out the consistency and the variety of guests and the curation as well, which is a really, really important part that no one ever really thinks of. Because when you're a small podcaster, you're also the guy that books the people onto your show. So it's not just about making the conversation. It's about creating the people that come into the show to make the conversation as well. Um, So yeah, I see no reason why it should slow down. It should continue to get bigger. The network effect is important. You know, once you've had a a Robert Green on, then you can get a James Clear. And once you've had a James Clear, you can get a Jordan Peterson. And once you've had a Jordan Peterson, you can get a Sam Harris and so on and so forth. So you should raise up like that. You do definitely get a Matthew principle going on here, right? Because the big hitters in the podcast world can only do so many episodes. And to those who have more, uh, to those who have everything, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, more will be taken. Like you will see podcasts stratify out, but consistency, I really enjoy it. And if no one listened, I'd still do it. Like, there's nothing that I would rather do than stand in front of this microphone and have a conversation with someone a few nights a week. So like, even if it drops off a cliff and everybody stops listening, I don't really care. Like, I never did it for clout or esteem. It was the first thing I've I've ever, ever done in my life that wasn't a, pers- a commercial pursuit. Mm. It was a passion project. And it makes you a bit sort of, it makes you bulletproof in that way. So that. I'm just going to keep on doing... I get a lot of criticism because people start to adopt you as the darling of theirs, the darling of the right, or the darling of the, the Meninism movement, or the darling of whatever. And you think, and then you bring somebody on, like Rutger Bregman, who was the one that called out everyone in the Davos conference and said, like, all of you billionaires are shills and you, you're all arseholes, basically. And all the comments are people saying, like, um, unsubscribed, can't believe you brought this cook onto the, onto the podcast. Like, bro... This isn't for you. Like, I'm not making this for you. I'm making this for people that want to understand how the world works. So anyway, um, yeah, uh, unless I manage to uh, do something catastrophically idiotic, which isn't beyond me, uh, it, it should be fine. Do you see that as what your kind of unique selling point is in the podcast space? Like, there's not, there's not a lack of smart people 
in this kind of, I guess, free speech podcasting space where they're happy to speak with people from the left, from the right, people that have been cancelled, blah, blah, blah. There's so many really good podcasts out there, whether you're Joe Rogan, or Sam Harris, Lex Freeman's, Comey Hughes, the list goes on. Why do you think people are still listening to you despite these incredibly smart voices out there who might have a bigger pull with an audience or might be able to get an, an even higher caliber guest? What's it that's keeping you going? Uh, well, I think that there's always gaps in the market, right? You know, even though Apple sell a lot of iPhones, there's still other phone manufacturers out there that are up and coming. Uh, I, I don't really know. I, I don't. I, I assess my own performance, but I try not to kind of over... Uh, be overly skeptical about what's what's happening and why it's working. People seem to resonate with the conversations. They like the guests. I think the way that it works, a, a good podcast is kind of like a, an art gallery curator or a museum curator, right? Like you enter the art gallery and you put your faith in the curator that maybe not every single piece of art is going to be amazing, but some of them will be absolutely mind-blowing pieces that you've never even thought that you would enjoy. Maybe some of them reinforce your existing beliefs about what you like about art. And maybe some of them challenge your existing beliefs. But you hope overall that once you've gone through the, the entire gallery or museum, when you leave, you think, oh yeah, actually that was, that was really, really good. I'm going to go back to that or I'm going to go to another museum that this guy does, whatever it might be. And I feel like presenting a combination of challenging political ideas and sort of pop culture stuff and then just some story i've got the de the guy that wrote a book on the world's deepest submarine rescue talking for an hour this week and it's just a story like it's like a, it's literally a storybook a scottish man telling a storybook about this crazy 1973 submarine rescue but i'm like that's that's pretty cool like you don't need to take anything away from this it's not going to improve your life there's no life hack to take away for unless you get captured in a submarine or something and you need to remember how to survive but um it's just cool and i think following curiosity genuinely and thinking right what do i find interesting and hope that other people do as well and it it seems to be working whatever whatever's happening seems to be working and the rogans and the friedmans and the harrises of the world like long may they continue because like i listen to them so i still need my content to listen to too are you close to getting sam harris on we'll see um i'm kind of swimming around his circles at the moment but he's a he's a tough cookie to to get a hold of and there's no rush like i don't feel like there's a compulsion for me there's an endless essentially an endless bottomless pit of of people that are interesting to speak to yeah uh, sam so after jordan sam was like he was probably twin uh yeah. for like absolute goals for me to get on the show um and some of the stuff he's been putting out recently is amazing like he's so erudite man He's yeah. vicious. He's so precise with the way that he speaks. And um, I would enjoy the challenge the same way as I'm sure, you know, like a Conor McGregor, Dustin Poirier fight, like they enjoy the opportunity of putting themselves into the ring or whatever. Not saying that I'm either of those guys, but you understand my point, like being able to sharpen your blade up against like the best in the world uh, is, is amazing. So I, I think I'll get him eventually, but this again, you know, you just pick anyone, any show, and they've got this amazing array of people, and you just get to go, oh, Andrew Huberman on Joe Rogan, that was amazing. Like, I'll just reach out to Andrew Huberman, see if I can get him on. It's it's a unbelievable, whatever version of the simulation we're in, it's it's going all right. Mm. The, the the Harris one I was interested in because um, he's like, he's, he's tier one in this space, if you like, in terms of this kind of whatever public intellectual free speech. Sense making, yeah, yeah. Space. Um, but he doesn't seem to do that many podcasts. Um, and I'm, I'm intrigued to know what his like team's process is for deciding where he goes. Like I saw he appeared on 
Megan Kelly's podcast a while ago. Um, she's definitely said some things in the past which he would just hugely, hugely disagree with, like, but to a point of where he would probably see her as a bad faith actor as opposed to someone that he could reasonably go on and speak with. Um, I think he's done a few things with the BBC, but then, like, he hasn't done Rogan in ages. Uh, his relationship with Dave Rubin seems to be pretty much dead in the water. He's, I think everyone's relationship with Dave Rubin's quite dead in the water. Yeah, he, I think he, this is. I think this is a Dave thing, not a Sam thing. Yeah, yeah, true. But then he's also withdrew his his uh, IDW IDW card. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen the most recent thing between him and Brett? Is um, no, they've just done a back and forth. Oh right, okay. So he released a podcast. Sam released a podcast on Friday, uh, essentially calmly eviscerating Brett's position on ivermectin and vaccine hesitancy. Uh, and then Brett's done a response live stream with Heather. Uh, he did that on Saturday. So the one from Sam is is very, very good. Uh, there's some questions that get left unanswered, but Brett's contributed to a lot of vaccine hesitancy over the last couple of months, and Sam has a, a huge problem with that. Mm. Uh, and he brings on a very well-respected doctor to kind of try and cut through some of the noise and see if Brett has an agenda with regards to this. But Sam, it strikes me that Sam is like the least fuck-giving guy out of that group of people. Maybe Shapiro's up there as well, but um, yeah, Sam, not a single fuck was given. Like, yeah, it's it, it's he's an interesting fella. Well, he's a genuine truth seeker, I think. Uh, I think he actually doesn't care about what the response is. He just cares about what the truth is. There's not that many of them. Uh, on Ruben, you've had him on your show a few times before, haven't you? Correct, yeah, probably about a year and a bit ago now. Um, yes, I have. It, it was weird. I remember when I first encountered him, probably about three years ago, oh, God, this guy's pretty interesting. I liked um, the way he was thinking. His, this was the beginning of the kind of the red bill phenomenon, I guess, and how he sort of moved from a Democrat to not being a Republican, but being a sort of an independent I thought he was an excellent interviewer, like a really, really good interviewer. And then the more and more I watched and saw him just get bigger and bigger on the Donald Trump MAGA train to the, now it's like watching someone who's borderline insane. Like he will just peddle conspiracy theories. Uh, I still think he claims the election wasn't like lost or wasn't legit. And it was just, it was so weird to, to see someone go from a, and I can't think of any, one else that I follow that had that same sort of decline who went from someone that was in this IDW crowd and was respected amongst them. I know they all have gone their separate ways and said like Sam and Brett now have some, some what I call it beef or like a lot of disagreements, which may not be able to be compromised. Um, but the way Ruben has just declined into like from a kind of liberal independent thinking and still calls himself a liberal, but every single ally he has is now two degrees away from Quiet on or something like that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I wrote down in my notes, uh, my newsletter notes this morning, you can't out hustle being uncool. And this is something that uh, you really need to have your finger on the bleeding edge of the pulse of the internet to kind of see this. But a few good examples uh, Dan Bilzerian, the real cool kids on YouTube, kids like Phillyon and Coffeezilla that kind of really understand this sort of shit. They were calling out Dan Bilzerian two years ago. Tom Nash was calling him out about one year ago. And now everybody thinks that Dan Bilzerian's a man-child. 
mm. right? Like nobody looks at him and thinks that he's cool anymore. And comedians are doing roasts of him. And all I think that he can prove to be a compulsive liar, essentially. Like, like the, what he claims to have made from poker just is not feasible. Like no yes. from poker player in the world has made that. Yeah. So you have this beginning of a of the avalanche, but then everything else you actually realize, mm. oh God, this just permeates his entire being. He said he owned that house in Beverly Hills or, or on the top of the Hollywood Hills. And it turned mm. out he was renting it, so on and so forth. Mm. Um, and then you have the same, I think you have something kind of, similar with Dave Rubin. So if you look at Dave Rubin's Reddit thread, uh, his subreddit, uh, it's been hijacked by people that really don't like Dave Rubin, mm -hmm. which is the most brutal thing. Because now that anybody goes on to search for someone that they're not sure if they like or not, they get the mimetic desire mm -hmm. of everybody thinks this guy's a loser and they see that and then, but I really do think that Dave is going to have a, a challenging few years ahead to maintain his reputation because it doesn't matter your reach if you're so toxically uncool to the people that matter, not to the 45 year olds in like middle South America who might watch your content and press thumbs up and might even support you on Patreon, but really don't influence opinion. Um, that there's no hustle out of that. Like w once you sell your integrity, you can't buy it back. And, um, yeah, I think that a really, really good example. Like, I don't know anybody else who's taken a nosedive in the same way as in the same way as Dave. And the interesting thing is that what I've noticed, and I see this with my show, and it sounds like you might be a little bit more disagreeable, sort of just generally with guests than I am. Um, my uh, inclination isn't hugely disagreeable because I choose people that come onto my show, most of whom I agree with their work because that's why I brought them onto my show. I find them interesting. So I think, oh, I've read your work and I'm uh, convinced by it. And it usually takes me a while to become skeptical. I don't tend to err on the side of skepticism, not at least aggressively. What I've noticed is that if I'm not skeptical enough on the show, if I don't stress test people's opinions, I could have 300 people in a row and agree with everything that they said without compromising my values. Like that's perfectly um, statistically uh, uh, potential, right? But if I don't stress test their opinions, if you check the YouTube comments, you actually get people starting to say, oh, mate, like you, 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 you haven't challenged them on this. And your integrity as a host becomes questioned because pushing back is seen as a signal of good faith argumentation. It's important to push back. And I think that Dave is he's like the absolute extreme of agreeable when it comes to being like a lack of skepticism. People have said stuff with regards to sort of gay marriage to him that he hasn't pushed back against. I mean, if you look for the, some of the clips online of these sort of super yeah, clips. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is always at the top of my YouTube feed. Um, <laughs> the, that channel could have more subscribers than Ruben's channel at the rate it's going. It's terrifying for anyone that doesn't know what we're talking about. Uh, a anonymous channel called Dave Rubin Clips just takes clips of Dave with no commentary over the top of them and simply presents them to the internet in a... Well, I mean, Dave presents himself in a poor light. I mean, obviously, they're, they're particularly selected, so the, some of the context is removed. But yeah, it's, um, it's a little bit of a difficult one to watch. But yeah, because I said this about Sam a while ago. You brought Sam up. Um, the reason that I trust Sam's position is that he's paid an incredibly high price socially for a lot of the positions that he holds. Mm. Like going against Trump or being for vaccines is actually anti to a lot of the uh, of his audience. It would be significantly easier for him to just say what they wanted to hear or to not bring it up at all. 
but he does. And the price that he needs to pay to do that kind of reassures me that he's a good faith actor. So what happens is, as a, an interviewer, if you don't stress test ideas sufficiently frequently, uh, even if you agree with them, just pushing back and saying, well, why is that the case? Or like a, a healthy dose of skepticism, essentially. Um, if you don't include that, your audience has such a grift radar, like it's so finely attuned that they switch off. I heard him speak about this recently. He said Eric Weinstein uh, uh, spoke about this phenomenon called audience capture, that basically if you lean like left or lean right, you're more likely to continue leaning that way because of audience capture. Um, and with Sam, it's just it's so clearly that he constantly works on this because he will really, really annoy 20% of his audience on one side or the other with any podcast that he does. Like, you, even look, oh, look, both. Both sides sometimes. If you look at his Twitter, um, if you look at me, if, if he puts up a tweet, I wouldn't say he gets more hate than like, but like there's a lot of resentful comments underneath there, whereas uh, with other guys, there's, I don't know, it seems like um, if Peterson puts up a tweet, when I look at it, usually there's like a lot of... Um, sycophancy. I mean, yeah, sycophancy going up to it, whereas when Sam Harris, it's, you can just see how divisive his audience is. Um, I watched a podcast you did recently, and you said... Uh, you were talking about some, it was something Donald Trump related. And he posed a question, he said, if Donald Trump didn't lose the election, and then you go, oh, sorry, I don't want to say lost the election because I get shit in my comments for saying that. Like, oh, if he was no longer president. And at the back of my head, I thought, well, he did lose the election. Like, you're lying there to try and satisfy your audience. Is that something you're aware of that your audience might be leaning one way and you might be becoming affected by how they respond to you? So that's a, a kind of a tongue-in-cheek fourth wall break. Like, I don't really care. Donald Trump did lose the election. I don't have any uh, other opinion than that. I do sometimes like to call out the ridiculousness of, of the people that say that. The same as, as I think I said in the same episode uh, about uh, how George Floyd was killed, but then people like to say, no, 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 he wasn't killed, he died. Oh, like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. F Fucking hell, mate. Like, so just, I have a, I have a real kind of like, heat-seeking missile for trying to find the points where people's hypocrisies lie. Mm. Uh, and maybe I could have done a more, maybe my sarcasm could have been turned on a little bit more. But certainly with that, like, you know, just saying, look, I don't care about whether or not you think that Donald Trump lost the election mm. or whether you thought that it was stolen from him or whatever legitimacy. Lexically, I'm going to use whatever is most sort of expedient and most efficient for me at the time and if i say lost as opposed to stolen don't highlight in the comments the fact that i've used one word instead of another like mm -hmm. this channel isn't for you basically yeah. okay okay that's that's a good way of putting it um what are your thoughts on joe rogan he's the goat man really I yeah. He, yeah i i i take him at face value as a a, a podcaster i don't really understand all of the positions that he holds like he's got crazy knowledge about ufos and conspiracy not conspiracies i guess but uh, false flag events and stuff like that in the us and i'm like fuck this is so far over my head as a podcaster he is as good as you can get or as good as i've seen for the style that i like very meandering very conversational which i've heard um reputably uh first-hand experience from uh, many guests that have been on his show uh, makes him almost impossible to prepare for because you have no idea where the conversation's going to go. Like if he's had a really good sauna that morning, the first 30 minutes of the conversation could be about saunas and um, you kind of don't really know. But yeah, I really, I really enjoy his content. Do you think, 
I think he's an excellent conversationist. Like really, like that's why he's such a good podcaster because he's just a really, really good conversationist. And what you said there, I, I can see when when I watch his podcasts. My criticism of him would be is that he's now assumed this position as this cultural icon who, uh, like if a politician was running for president, they would want to get on this podcast first before like CNN. But his understanding and education around some kind of key political issues is really, really, really basic. Uh, and worryingly so for a guy of his position. And I think he doesn't take himself seriously, which is great. Like he'll say, I'm an idiot. I'm pissed half the time. I'm smoking weed half the time. I'm saying stuff. I'm sure it's stupid. Like don't, I'm not the Bible here. But I do think he has a sort of um, a responsibility now to try and become more serious sometimes when he has people on, like when he is interviewing Bernie Sanders. Uh, and I think then the next week later, like he just let Bernie Sanders say whatever about why we need big government, why we need big government. And the week later he had that Republican guy on who does the rounds. The, got the, it's got Dan the, Crenshaw. Yeah, Dan Crenshaw. And then Dan Crenshaw was there on the next week, it's like coming from a more libertarian stance and saying, this is why I'm rubbing their kind of nodding head and nodding head. And I just kind of thought, you, you don't really understand what these people are fully talking about. So you can't really challenge them on it. And I think he, he needs to be able to because um, he is now the most influential person when it comes to politics, even though he doesn't want to be. And he'll say himself, I don't know anything about politics, but he's still in that space. And he like he will have an impact in the next US presidential uh, race. Yeah, I mean, the, the term that you used was kind of, sort of he's assumed this position at the top. It's almost been bestowed on him, right? Mm -hmm. I think he's just done what he's done. And then the audience has said, look, you are now lord of all internet traffic uh yeah it's a very interesting conversation i've been talking about this a lot with david fuller from rebel wisdom at what point does your level of clout require you to up your game like how much responsibility do we have to stress test the ideas of our guest how much responsibility does the audience have to be skeptical of the things that they hear because you could say if joe puts a bernie on and a dan on they're not precisely the same but let's say that those are equal sides of the same seesaw right that one's on the left and one's on the right joe could just allow them to present their ideas and let the audience think for themselves we do have to remember that the audience's skepticism is also another that there's a third party in this it's not just joe and the guest there is a, a listener the same as between me and you you might not stress test something i say that allows me to walk through a point but the audience still has their ability to mediate what they think of what i've said or of what you've said um, I do think that you're right. I do think that there is a degree of responsibility that comes, like with great power comes great responsibility. And um, But it's difficult, right? Like, it, it, should Joe be responsible for educating himself, like, re you know, reading hardcore political theory to really get himself up to speed? so that he can have his conversation podcast it's a, a, an interesting ethical question that he just does this for fun yes he's got this huge platform and it's come along with him but the people that listen to his show are they now informing how he should live his life outside of the show like you know he's 56 or something like that he's in his 50s like joe isn't going to be around for an unlimited amount of time and saying, look, man, to continue doing your show and having the platform that you do, you need to dedicate X number of hours per week or per month 
to learning this thing that you might not give a shit about because the impact of your show is so great that it's your duty. It's like a duty of care to actually have this ammunition to be able to stress test these My ideas. Would be he does. And with that, it's because there are negative externalities to assuming a public position in any walk of life. So if you're a footballer, people could say, oh, all that person wants to do is play football. Why does he have to deal with the media? Well, it's part of why he's paid a huge salary and that's why he is where he is. Like when people talk about this tennis player, I forget her name, who's quit, uh, who earned $56 million last year, but she's refusing to do any media interviews. And there's one side of people that are saying, fair play to her, the journalists don't respect her mental health. There's other side of people that are saying, look, she plays tennis, she loves it, that's great, but this is a part of the gig and you take it up, take on that knowingly. And I think Joe Rogan is in that position now where it's like he's earned a $100 million contract on off Spotify. Like, I don't begrudge him for that, but with that, there will come certain negative externalities. And maybe you wouldn't even say they're negative externalities, but there with that comes a responsibility of possibly doing things that you may not see as part of your job description. So he might see his job description as, I'm having beers, I'm smoking weed, I'm talking to someone for three hours, I don't care what people think about it. About it. But that's not what it is anymore because it's become so big. And, and it's the same in any walk of life. When you get to a position of some sort of power, there is stuff that you don't want to do that comes with the job, even though it's not. You've got, to, you've got to turn pro at some point, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I do. I think um, I'm undecided. I'm as yet undecided on this because it's a very nuanced conversation, especially when you get into the real nitty gritty. For instance, um, Joe could challenge every guest on every point that they put forward that he isn't 100% certain on. But that isn't good conversation craft because you're going to have this unbelievably branched conversation with no central thrust. Like you need to pick your battles. I got criticized for um, not challenging Michael Knowles saying that Alex Jones is right about lots of things or something like that. And I was like, I don't even remember him bringing that up. It's a passing comment about one guy. And I responded to it in a Q&A. And I was like, look, man, like I can't stress test everything that's in there. I can't even question everything that I don't agree with because there's only a limited amount of time here. And the listening experience would be so fragmented that it would be disgusting. It would just be constant questions about stuff. Like Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris's first conversation where they just went in loops and loops and loops about some shitty side point. And you're like, look, get back to the thing that we're here to listen about. So the problem is that podcasting specifically in a conversation is very messy. It's got undefined, unbounded rules. It's not like a game of football. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. This is a score. This is a goal. This is a score. This is a goal. This is a, a loss, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like it's not bounded like that. So the rules of when have you pushed back enough? When have you not pushed back enough? Should you have said, like, challenged every other point or every three points or every point? Or, do you know what I mean? It, it's very difficult to work out. And no one can create a rule around what makes a good listening experience with a sufficient amount of challenging, with a sufficient amount of um, moving the conversation forward. It's super, super messy. Um, I do think that generally, overall, as your platform grows, your responsibility to become increasingly appropriately skeptical and to stress test the ideas that are being put forward is important because if you permit someone to come onto the channel and don't stress test their ideas and this is something that i'm only recently really starting to learn kind of how to do because if you it's a, it's a skill it's a real skill to have somebody that's got big clout in front of you and then say i don't agree with what you're saying because who the fuck are you to say to them? But then after a little while, you realize, well, hang on a second. Like, yes, like this is my platform. And that actually, this actually mirrors quite nicely what we're talking about. Like that as your 
social renown or, or your clout or your status increases, your legitimacy in challenging the points of view of big name guests actually does go up. Now, maybe you could say in the purest form of the world, you wouldn't need to even play that game, that you could be 1,000 subscriber brand new channel and you can challenge the Sam Harris or the Jordan Peterson on whatever you want. But everybody knows that you need to play. There's a little bit of game playing that needs to go on here. Like if you decide to completely call out one of these huge name guests on your first episode, maybe maybe that sort of cuts off some future opportunities that limits your growth. So there's a lot going on here. So many different variables. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating, a fascinating conversation. I think more and more people are going to have this now as podcasters are given uh, increasingly disproportionate clout within moving the culture around. I think it's going to be a very, very uh, interesting conversation. When you had Jordan Peterson on your podcast, uh, I saw at the start, you just sort of said how um, delighted you were to have him on, how privileged you were to have him on, how he is someone who has directly made your life better or made you a better person. And I often hear people say this about Peter Simmons. Uh, I, I like Jordan. I listen to him a lot. But I, I'm so intrigued by the Jordan Peterson phenomenon and how he has this real army of people who will say that they were chronically depressed and he helps them get better. Because his message is pretty simple. It's take responsibility for your life. Start, set small goals. Start achieving them. Tell the truth. Like these Tell are the truth, yeah hugely um controversial things i know fox news and uh the guardian might might think so but uh, these are pretty like what so here's a good question for you there like who else is who else six years ago was talking about that publicly with a platform of his size mm. no I, I know it's just it's nearly like it's nearly, there's such basic things it's something that i i just didn't think people needed to hear like tell the truth like that shouldn't be a, a grand thing, obviously. Yeah. Well, dude, man, I, I, um, so it's, but give me I, an example. Give me an example now. Okay. So I'm asking you, how has Jordan Peterson made your life better? How has he made you a better person? Give me an example where you've read a Peterson thing, you've listened to a Peterson thing, and you've integrated into that your life and you've become better because of it. So telling the truth is a really obvious one for me. Spent a long time before Peterson said that you would have lied. I was not valuing the truth in the way that I do now at all um jordan for me personally right, and, and i think just, just uh, before we answer that do you still lie sometimes yeah nobody tells it nobody tells the truth all the time that, that's that's one of my things with it is that like lying is beneficial sometimes and have you read lying by sam harris no i would highly advise that you give that a read so that's the most robust framework for why you should literally never lie that I've ever heard. It's the same as Cal Newport's deep work. It's a little bit like, fuck me, like this is extreme. Is there no use case that I can come up with? It's more an armchair philosophical uh, treatise on why you should never lie as opposed to a practical application of why lying is always bad. Um, but for a long time, I was um, playing personas. Young people, they get captured by whatever they first get status in. So my identity was wrapped up in being a club promoter and um, monetary success and how many people knew me and all this sort of stuff. But deep down, I was very unconfident. I was hopelessly um, willing to do anything in order to get approval from whoever I was speaking to. And what that caused me to do was to compromise what I wanted or what I should have said in order to say what I thought the other person wanted me to say. So is it lying if you're scared to say the truth? 
yeah probably but it's not it's the difference between commission and omission a little bit here like you're not going out of your way to try and con somebody else you're just terrified of telling them what you genuinely believe and then maybe your life is so long that you bury your true self under so many personas you don't know who it is anymore and you're like well i don't even know what my fucking truth is like i've i've See, I, I, I think that that's different. That's about being true to yourself, which is a very definite truth of, of knowing who you are. And, and, and but that, that manifests as you telling the truth. If you're unable to be true to yourself, telling the truth when you move forward is also very difficult. I think it's like a fundamental. So you can swallow the persona so much that it crawls back out of your own eyes and looks out of your own head. So you're still not telling your truth. Oh, even when it just comes to telling the truth generally, right? So my missus might have said, where were you last night? And naturally, I might know that there's a little bit more uh, of a chance. There's a, a two in five chance that she might complain if I said I was out with the lads and went to an after party or whatever. So it would be easy for me to say that I did something else. But over time, that would compound and actually would uh, present a version of you which isn't the truth. Now, that's something that I absolutely do not do. Um, taking responsibility for your actions and avoiding a victim mindset generally as another one from Jordan, wasn't something that I tended to do, but I certainly now lean into taking responsibility whenever there's an opportunity. So I see that there's a challenge in front of me. I ruptured my Achilles last year and I was like, that fucking sucks. That feels really, really fucking unfair. Like I shouldn't have gone back to playing a really casual sport like cricket, which is the most British way to snap an Achilles ever. And then um, I have this injury, like this sucks. Okay, like, no one else is going to come and fix it for you. No one else is going to do the rehab. No one else is going to go through the surgery. This is your job to do. And this is character building. This is an opportunity for you to be open and honest about your vulnerabilities. So I was, I was scared. It's the first time I've ever had an operation. So I asked to be put under general anesthetic as opposed to local because I didn't want to be awake for it. And they said, why do you want to be under general anesthetic? And I said, because I'm scared. So I told the truth there. I took responsibility for the way that I felt. I realized that it was my job to speak that forward. Um, just to bookend sort of the Jordan thing, for me personally, and I said this at the very end of the episode with him, that it was rather than him providing me with an entire framework for my life, he was like an, a pebble at the top of an avalanche. So he was a gateway drug for me to get into more things, more pieces of content, more thinkers um, that genuinely improved my life. And I think that maybe this is why you're seeing um, such an army of Jordan fans that he's their genesis point for a lot of their pivots in life. He certainly arrived at the same time for me, but then I was listening to a lot of Sam and a lot of a School of Life and a lot of Rogan, so God knows where it came from. But he provided some starting points for me to kick off from that were so obvious, as you say, like, but the best books tell you some things that you already know. Mm. So perhaps that's why. I don't know. Maybe it is just chicken soup for the soul that was at the right time and knocked everybody into the right direction but um yeah it, it certainly got me thinking about life in the right way and from then on things have become easier mm. um do you watch football when my housemate has it on in the living room yes so you're not a football fan by sort of default you're a jordy though you're from newcastle aren't you from stockton originally and now adopted by newcastle yes okay okay well, what did you make of the euros um interesting one um i watched the final in ibiza obviously very sad that we didn't make it through um broadly i was more interested in the way that the news 
uh, and society sort of in general responded to the England team's performance thereafter, uh, it made me feel very uncomfortable that a national sporting event had been maligned by both sides. So there was some complete morons who had decided to take a player's race as the first thing that they should have brought up. And those people just have no place in society. And then on top of that, we had the media that decided that they were going to really, really lean into that narrative mm. because it's limbic hijack and it's going to get more clicks than talking about how unfortunate it is that we lost. Like, who wants to click mm. on that story? Like, almost no one. Um, so I was just very disappointed with both sides of that of that yeah. conversation. It made me feel very uncomfortable. It made me feel very embarrassed um, to be British, given the fact that we've just lost, like, the second best football tournament in the world. I should have actually... And it, it really like yourself it really infuriated me how people spoke about the aftermath instead of just saying that was a great tournament for england kind of brought the country together there were some bad things but all they did was just clutch on to what they said were, were racist matches sent to sancho saka and, and rashford well the point that we're making here is an important one to distinguish because and this is one of the problems right with having a low bandwidth mediums of communication right now me and you can really get into the weeds of exactly what we mean when we say this but on Twitter, you've got, what, 260 characters or something like that, and there's no context behind the things that people are saying. So that's that's one thing that everyone should keep in mind, even in a newspaper column, right? Like, you don't have an unlimited number of words, so people need to be, they need to condense and compress down what they're talking about. It can be both, both these things can be true. It can be true that racism shouldn't exist in sport, certainly not against a team of players who've just gone through like the worst loss it's going to be a life-changing inflection point for all of them the fact that they made it to the european final and that they didn't win because of a penalty like that's it's i can't imagine a worse thing for a player to feel uh, in the moment right it's going to be absolutely heartbreaking so it can be true that racism has absolutely no place in sport and it can also be true that the press completely overblew the problem of racism because they knew that it was going to limbically hijack the entire public and going to generate clicks and generate rage. You cannot say that the actions of a few people constitutes systematic anything. Mm. It's obviously not systematic. To say that someone has the right to express themselves in one way but not in another wouldn't be fair. The, the, the um, implication that not being anti-racist is the same as being racist, I, I don't think is makes a whole lot of logical sense to me so somebody that disagrees with something that the players are doing remembering that people can disagree for an all a huge host of reasons about taking the knee black lives matter founder has just been uh, discovered for embezzling tons of mo tons of money you've got concerns about it being a front for a marxist organization this slow march through the institutions all sorts of problems that people have with that institution and they're unable to detach the uh, image of a player on his knee from what that organization is and a lot of the bad things justifiably that are from that and at the same time you can say that players making a push against racism is a really good way to raise the profile of stopping racism within a country because you have these guys that are on tons and tons of money and they're prepared to do it so we should be prepared to do it too all of these things can be true everything can be true at once but i don't i think that you're right i think that boris johnson and pretty patel them saying that you are allowed to disagree with an overtly political gesture because of your political leanings, I, I, I don't think that that's unfair. Rolling that forward and saying this has legitimized a huge swath of 
racists that all obviously exist in the UK. Like, what do you mean, obviously? Like, I don't see them. Mm. I don't see them with the people that I talk. I don't think it. So, I don't know. There's just a lot of sort of country hating that's going on at the moment. And the US sneezes and the UK catches a cold with this stuff. Like, if you detest your country, you say that inherently it was founded on racism. We can't have that. I mean, maybe someone's going to talk about, like, the Norman landings and, and Vikings and stuff like that and talk about ancestral trauma in that way. But I don't think that we've quite got the same legitimacy of that claim as America has, whatever legitimacy they do have. But talking about systematic racism, like it's embedded into the substrate of what the UK is. Like, I, I simply don't see that. I don't see that. I've met a million people throughout my career. I've watched a million people go in and out of nightclubs. And I've seen maybe five racist incidents across a million people. Mm. Like gatekeeping a, a sacredness around this because of the current media furor. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's easy for me and you to say as two white guys that, you know, racism essentially doesn't, is never bestowed on us. Um, I don't know. I think that's a very interesting point, though. What, how do we extend these same protections that we afford to people's racial identities to things that are more personal? You know, if there was a transgender weightlifter or a, a, a gay player or a, a lesbian uh, footballer in the women's team and players were booing them or whatever, uh, but what if it was that a player's missus had just cheated on him with someone else and the entire stadium decided to laugh together in, in concert out of all of those, I know which one I'd rather happen. Like, I'd much sooner be booed for something that's an immutable characteristic that's a part of everyone else's life that's millions and billions of people on the planet than feel like the entire stadium knows my personal business and is laughing and mocking me for that. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting cultural phenomenon how we've protected certain areas of people's lives but leave others rampant to be criticised. Um, to sort of wrap things up, I want to get your kind of thoughts on podcasting as a medium, as the future. Do you think it's going to continue to grow as it has, like, as we mentioned before, how Rogan is now more influential than the political commentator on CNN? Um, do you see the BBC coming to you in like two years' time and saying, Chris, can we buy your channel for, I don't know, 10 million or something and, and bring you on board here and you become our, our main correspondent for whatever it is? Or do you think um, do you think the media will still be will continue to kind of uh, blow up from within as it has been over the last few years? Continue to lose subscribers, and that someone like yourself, who's completely free and independent, untouched to anything, will will grow as a result. Interesting one, man. The legacy media, I have no idea where they're going to go. They're in it's in free fall at the moment. It seems to be going in one direction. Um, if you look at people like the BBC, they, they are dipping their toes in podcasts. You know, look, GB News, good example, brand new news station. And they've got the republishing stuff onto YouTube. You can watch it 24 hours a day live on YouTube now. Uh, they've got stuff on Apple Podcasts. Andrew Doyle's got a show. So the commentators, it's, it's this sort of like omni-channel approach. Um, so they're aware, the legacy media are aware that they're in a declining um, format. I don't know whether or not companies like more private companies publicly owned ones like the bbc are going to reach out to individual creators and try and get them 
uh, try and buy their shows. I think you'll see platforms increasing. You'll see more and more platforms like, um, what is it that Russell Brand's on? What's it called? Not Legendary. Uh, Russell Brand's Luminary. Um, so you can only watch like full episodes of Russell Brand's podcast on Luminary or listen to it, uh, Rogan on Spotify. I think that you're going to see um, different channels and different platforms start to buy things off. Uh, I'm not really too sure about about what's going to happen with with the legacy media, about how they're going to potentially try and tie in. I would guess that the podcasting platform overall, it sees shows no sign of slowing down. I think it sort of doubles every two years to three years, something like that in terms of audience size. Obviously, that can't keep going. But I still think there's a lot of headroom above it. And I wonder whether it'll get to a point where it's saturated. I can see there being sort of two broad directions that podcasting, the, the industry could go in. One would be that you will get this Matthew principle. You will have the Harrises and the Rogans and the Shapiros and you will have everybody else, basically. Um, and then the other one will be more of just a normal distribution where you have a big chunk of people in the middle that are producing good shows that are getting however many thousand plays per month and then you'll have fewer and fewer leading up towards the absolute big hitters at the top and then well actually i mean you'll have an absolute huge amount at the bottom end as well that just uh, enjoy talking about whatever their niche is um it's an interesting one man it's an interesting space to be in and the fact that people are so compelled to listen to long-form conversations usually with at least one stranger, sometimes with two strangers that they've never heard about before. Uh, it's part of a slow lifestyle that I think a lot of people are yearning for at the moment. When you're watching TikTok videos that are, you know, one second long and swiping through and spending however many hours on your phone, hearing two people just talk about one topic or a couple of topics for a long time, it does just slow that entire stimulation down. And I think that... It's one of the reasons that I enjoy it. You know, I'm going on a long drive. I look forward to the drive because I think, oh, wow, I get to listen to this one conversation about whatever, even if it's something, even if it doesn't add any uh, takeaway value to my life, maybe I just get to relax and switch my mind off for a little while and hear something enjoyable. Um, yeah, it's a really fascinating time. Finally, last question we always ask our guests is to recommend any books they have read that have pretty much changed their life if there are any that you have uh, come across that you put into that sort of a uh, category i've yesterday recorded a video of the 10 most important books that i've ever read um personal development everybody needs to start with essentialism by greg McEwen. the reason is that we have far too many options in our lives and learning to say yes to fewer and no to more is really important so essentialism by greg McEwen, easy one on audible um the lost highlander by uh, Sir Al uh by alistair urquhart is kind of like man's search for meaning but much more hardcore this scottish soldier is captured by the uh, japanese in singapore and for three and a half years just gets subjected to the most brutal conditions you've ever heard stays quiet he gets knocked off his feet by the nagasaki bomb blast he gets locked in a hell ship with cannibals he gets put in tin boxes in the middle of the river kwai when he's building it on forced labor camps stays quiet for 50 years and then writes this book and it just reminds you that whatever you think is going on in your life it's probably not that bad and then finally i would say the precipice by toby ord which is a single one-stop shop book for understanding existential risk what are all of the different risks that humanity faces how could we get past them why is it important that we get past them how important is climate change or bioweapons or nuclear war or artificial general intelligence um, so those would be three really good ones essentialism 
Lost, uh, Forgotten Highlander and The Precipice. Sorry, last question for you. Um, Sondaval tweeted the other day, he was talking about the difference between reading and watching. I think he said reading is like drinking vegetables or, or I think watching is like drinking vegetables, reading is like eating your vegetables. However, that works as a reference, I don't know. But clearly he was trying to say reading is far more important than watching a documentary or listening to a podcast or whatever it is. What's your take on that? Why do you think reading is uh, the sort of the essential platform to learn from? Or do you think now, because of the age we live in, where I can listen to you speak with someone about uh, a certain Their book that you could have read instead of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Really interesting one, that. Personally, for me, with the way that my brain works, I know that reading something is 2x to 5x the retention and the comprehension. Wow, okay. Than than listening to it is. Um, That may be a quirk of... Uh, maybe I just don't have enough attention to uh, be able to take things in. That being said, it de- it's context dependent. If it's, I'm listening to Andrew Huberman's show this morning and he's just talking through his daily routine and I'm just thinking to myself, okay, tick, tick, like salt in the war- in the morning, sun in the eyes, like train within 90 minutes of wake, all this, whatever, whatever. Like that, I can, that's fine. But he couldn't have written that as a book. Uh, it's, equivalent would be Essentialism by Greg McEwen. You can listen to the podcast and probably take away most of the book. But then there's a lot of other books where the context is exactly what you're there for. And if it's a little bit more cognitively challenging, I have to read it. Because a lot of the time I need to go back and read a passage two or three times and then maybe even just like sit and think, shit, like that links in with what they said before. Uh, It would be the equivalent to me, uh, perhaps a better example would be running on a treadmill versus running on the road. So on the treadmill, you are at a predefined speed and you just need to keep up. Whereas on the road, you are self-propelled and you need to choose your own pace that you run at. And you can slow down at any time. I mean, you can slow down at any time on both of them. But um, yeah, I would, if you are not a reader, which I wasn't five years ago, like I just didn't do it since uni. It was something that got in the way and I couldn't be bothered. I couldn't sit still. I was fidgeting because I was so used to the compulsion of a mm. of a device with bings and bongs and colors and, and flashing notifications. And um, just try five minutes on a morning, like just pick a book anything that we've said or anything that you recommend man and just try five minutes on the morning and extend that out like five ten fifteen and before you know it you will be able to read and to comprehend and again it's part of this slow lifestyle you'll just get you know 15 minutes just sat in silence looking at some words on a page but you'll feel better afterward mm. awesome uh chris thanks for that that has been uh, a lot of fun i've uh, really enjoyed it my pleasure man thanks for having me on